Welcome to Cookie the Books with me, Julie Smith, where each week a list of food writers talk me through four food moments from their latest books, which tell the story that's most important to them. No one knew who I was. I had maintained and held a mission star for two guides, but at the same point, no one knew in the industry who I was, let alone, you know, anyone on Marlowe High Street. This week, Tom Kerridge picks through his choice of moments. But first, let's dive into our goodie bag from this month's sponsor, the deliciously healthy Greek and Mediterranean fine foods producer, Odyssey. This week, we're talking raw honey. Odyssey's pine and fir tree raw honey and Greek oak tree raw honey have now been certified as high sources of the mineral manganese, which boosts the metabolism and keeps your bones in good nick. And as honey sommelier Sarah Wyndham Lewis of Bermondsey Street Bees tells us, it's fantastically good for us. Um, the important thing, though, we should all know is the NHS tells us to go for honey rather than go to the doctor when we've got coughs and colds, and that's really good advice. But you do need to make sure that it's proper raw honey, not processed honey that you will find on shelves. So this is this is something that you're going to invest in your health. So these two honeys, the oak and the fir and pine, are both dark and rich they're full of minerals and that's one of the indicators of a really good medical honey right across the world every beekeeping culture has its own medical resources in its native honeys but these greek ones are really super powerful so if you're looking at raw honeys you can be pretty sure that to a greater or lesser degree what you will find in them is that they're antibacterial so they work like a broad spectrum antibiotic they're antiviral they're anti-inflammatory they're antifungal and they're full of micronutrients and don't we all just need that in these winter days? These special honeys are produced exclusively for Odyssey by artisan beekeeper Alexandros Gutierrez, who harvests the honey from his hives in mainland Greece. The honeys are made in small batches, cold extracted, unfiltered, unpasteurized, and unprocessed, ensuring the nutritional properties aren't destroyed. Now, come with me to Marlowe, to the only two-star Michelin pub in Britain, the Hand and Flowers. Chef of the people, Tom Kerridge gives us his insider tips on getting a first star, his thoughts on Instagram's influence on curious young chefs, and a masterclass in Elizabeth David's original creme brulee. His brand new Hand and Flowers cookbook feels like a seminal work on modern gastronomy and his life's work. I asked him if that was the intention. It's been 15 years in the making. Uh, the Hand and Flower has been open. Um, it, it's kind of like a celebrationary year this year, but this was the first book that we were supposed to be doing. So um, when we first signed the deal, it was an idea of going, right, let's just do, a, it was a one book deal, um, Hand and Flower's cookbook, and it would be really nice. But actually, um, kind of like television came along, I did quite well in Great British Menu, and then we were asked to do a series about pub food, and it all just kind of, things just kind of rolled. So the Hand and Flower's book I, it ended up getting kind of, put to one side so it's actually quite nice to have come back to it and it's actually i mean the book now is is obviously way better than it would have ever been because it's now a much larger reflection of the food that we've done over the 15 years and the kind of the journey that we've been on and the space that we've got to and that's you know it it, it then it's then meant that this book is um well it's got much more weight behind it It, you know it's got there's much more it's rather than just a cookery book about um pub style food it's actually it's a cookbook of a pub that has become quite well known and acclaimed and and there's something about the cookbook the way that it's put together it feels like i'm quite proud of the fact that it feels quite it's quite old-fashioned in the way of it like it's a it's a proper style um 
uh, old school restauranty cookbook, you know, and it's it's not like any of the other books that we've done before. It's not like a, a Jamie or a Nigella book or a Delia book. It's not. It's it's a it's a it's a yeah, like you say, it's a proper momentous, solid cookbook of recipes that are very much chef led yeah i mean you can see my hundreds of cookbooks on on my shelves behind you and you know they're all kind of the same size yours is about twice that size i mean you know three pages per recipe with pictures all broken down it feels very much like the old school recipe books that you know i used to have like 20 years ago why did you go for that it feels very michelin and we'll talk a little bit about your michelin in a second but why did you go for that kind of old school break everything down you know five recipes per dish it's the food that we do at the hand of flowers it's not that i this can't be and shouldn't be a cookbook that is that dumbs down it can't the hand of flowers cookbook is the food that we do at the hand of flowers at the moment that you make it a food a food that we do a bit like the hand of flowers but you can do at home on a saturday evening isn't the hand of flowers cookbook is it so so it was it, it is a copy and paste of the recipes that we use for the dishes that exist that have been on the journey that are in the kitchen there is nothing different in this book to the 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 food that the chefs are cooking within the kitchens at the hand of flowers so it it's a complete replication and 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 it, it's a documented cookery book of the recipes that are at the hand of flowers so it wasn't a decision about the book it was the fact that it was the hand of flowers this is the hand of flowers and what's really interesting about that tom is that probably 20 30 years ago most people wouldn't be able to cook this kind of food they might like to have it they might like to leaf through it because it's a beautiful beautiful thing but now actually you're kind of assuming that there's going to be a lot of people who would really give this a go what kind of are you thinking about the kind of the cool millennials who are cooking have you got an idea of who those people are I think there's a lot more interest in food. People do cook a lot more and people, you know, obviously this year have had a bit more time, quite a few of us, to be at home and experiment a little bit more and try a little bit harder. And our interest in food has grown massively. The, the re, actually, the way that the cookbook is set out is very much in a way of, um, as the recipes are, are broken down, each element is, um, is there. And you may or may not decide that you want a particular twill to go with something or the extra garnishes that go with everything else. That, but the methodology and the, the systems that we use for the dish and the way that we cook are all very, very, um, they're all very solid and they're all very traditional and they're all, um, and then, and then they're all based on ingredient. So you can find those ingredients and you can, uh, you can take the dishes apart as much as you want. You can deconstruct them as much as you like, like the braised shin uh, of beef dish. You haven't then got to stick it into a, a piece of bone marrow, wrap it with potato, wrap it with carapanet, give it a secondary braising and a glaze and whatever. But you can just braise the shin with those methods and you end up with, a, a, you know, the most fantastic beef stew. You know, so there is the opportunity here to not necessarily replicate the dishes fully. You can, if you want, and give yourself a little bit of time, you know, you've got to remember that we, this is done in a professional kitchen with professional chefs but you know all the elements are there for you to be able to do if you are a competent cook and you you read through the recipe and you decide which parts and which elements you are going to have a go at yeah i didn't do the uh, baby onions in the water bath in my uh, halibut bourguignon but the rest of it was absolutely fantastic exactly well, you could have just pan fried them it doesn't matter you know but the, the idea of going actually halibut with bourguignon garnish beautiful very very simple the same sort of thing that you know is, is just different to using beef and actually what a quick and easy dish to do 
Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And really beautifully rich as well. Now, tell me about Michelin. How do you feel about it? You know, is it still relevant? Let's put it into context. You managed to scoop a, a, a one star 10 months after opening the Hand and Flowers in 2006. I mean, that is really extraordinary. But then you go and get another one. You're the only pub with two Michelin stars in the UK. What does that mean to you? Is it still relevant? And what does it do for a restaurant? So um, in terms of what it means for me is it's a huge, um, it's a huge achievement um, from a from a chef's point of view, from a personal point of view, but it, it's much bigger. It's it's the team, it's the collective. You don't, one person does not win two Michelin stars. It's it, you know it's driven by you know I opened it myself, a guy called Chris Mackett and another chef called Luke Butcher in the kitchen. It was just the three of us, who, and then from that we've built and grown and grown with these foundations to create an area and a space that has become the Hand of Flowers. And everybody that's a part of that journey, and every every little element, and every person that somebody meets, or even the, the everybody behind the scenes that are ensuring that the rooms are lovely the cleanest in the morning the people that all of these parts are so so important to to the um to the to the end result of the, the overall experience of what people get um so for our point of view the, the two mission star achievement is something that's fantastic for everybody it's amazing it's a, it's a team collective and it and it's something that the team are very proud of every day they go to work and every year that the guy comes out and we've maintained it it's an it's it's winning two stars again. It's, it's a congratulatory process for everybody. So it is, it's hugely about the team effort for, for that point of view. And then in terms of the guide and its relevance, yeah, I mean, for me, it's the, it's the most important guide in the world. Um, in terms of the way that guidebooks are looked upon, it has a, um, it never once bends to fashion or fads or trends. It never once, um, uh, it takes money from restaurants. It only, you know, it's completely anonymous. Um, and it, it, you know, people may or may not agree with it, or people may feel that it's quite, you know, in some reasons it's quite archaic, or in some reasons there's an angst about it, or some. But actually, none of that is none of that is true. You know, we create the angst. It's not the guide. It's our fault. We build all of that up. We make we make all of those kind of nervous decisions about it. Or we're we're the ones that put it on this on this pedestal. The guide is actually written for the guest and we we as restaurateurs and chefs and publicans we should be also cooking for the guest so if you're cooking for the guest and the guide you know inspector comes and they're the guest and you get it right then you know it's it, it, its achievement is you know it's fantastic and it's recognized and i think so much of that is down to about consistency and that's the most important thing because that is that consistency level those boxes that gets ticked um that is recognized around the world you should be able to you know be in marlow this evening have something to eat and then go into london uh marlow at lunchtime london in the evening have something great and then get on a flight late at night fly into new york and wake up the next day and go for lunch somewhere else and that has all three of them should have mission stars and all three of them you should you should have this kind of like um element that you recognize that as a level of quality that's matched across board so that's what makes it incredibly relevant i, I mean it's it's huge and it's massive yeah and you give a very useful tip actually when you manage to have a chat with an inspector they do come yeah. anonymously but then what did he ha- what happened in the car park 
like? Yeah, so, the, you know, within the first, um, in our first year, the car, one, one of the mission inspector's cars was broken into um, in the car park and someone stole his laptop and, you know, it, it, as they, they stole all, or, um, stole his laptop and Beth, my wife, went out to kind of help clear up the glass off the car park floor and off his back seat, but all over the all over the back seat was his um, headed Michelin note paper. So, you know, he was then kind of like, well, now you know who I am, which, which I mean, for, from a, from a young chef and restaurateur's point of view and from best point of view you sit there and you're absolutely terrified now that oh my god the mission guys have been in and we've had their cars been smashed in in the car park and what a nightmare but what it did do meant that i mean it could the day couldn't get any worse so at that point i just you end up having a conversation with them oh, i'm sorry and then you have a chat and and it was a very human-like conversation and, and you know it was just at the end of the day i mean it is just a smash window and a laptop it's covered by insurance there's no problem it comes back and once you, you sit there and have a cup of coffee and talk about just in general you know it, what it did do is it allowed to take that kind of nervousness and that fear away of what um of who a mission inspector is and allowed you uh, oh no you're like a, a bloke a human being like a nice person and we just sat here having a cup of, and it was it was a really nice and from that moment on it allowed me to not be nervous about them i, mean, I don't mean to not care because i care dearly but to not to not have this added layer of fear that you shouldn't have because they're just there they're, they they are trying to be supportive um if you're great and you get it consistently right then you get the recognition you deserve and that that's then shouted out to however many millions of people around the world that look at the mission guide as, uh, as somewhere where they should be going to have something for lunch or dinner yeah and he very usefully told you that what he looks for particularly in the one star is what gary rhodes did so brilliantly yeah so i worked for gary for for um uh, for a while at dolphin square when he was in pimlico in his restaurant in pimlico and one of the big things i learned there was um what you can take away from a plate rather than what you could put on it so if you know if you put three ingredients on the plate and they're all three of them are perfect then you know that's a perfect meal if you're putting eight things on the plate but only five of them are perfect all right you've got five things you've got two more things than the other three that are perfect but you've then got three things that aren't so you know you're only like every I think every point of business or any or anything that you look at, you're only as as good as your weakest link. And if your weakest link is a twill that doesn't need to be there, or an overcooked piece of fish, or a, 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 a an overpowering or over seasoned you know garnish of some sort, then that becomes the weakest element. So it was always about. Um, I, I was not really simplicity because when you look at the hand of flowers dishes and things that are in the book they're not always the simplest but they, they are they 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 reflective they are reflectively quite simple on the plate the work that goes into them in the in the prep level the mise en place level is always quite hard but that does leave it you yourself in a point where um that you can you can then put things on a plate and not be worried about the fact that, that you know you're hitting those standards that you want to achieve yeah top tip let's go into your food moments um you talk in the in the introduction about your affection for pubs and the reason why you really wanted to open a pub and and that is what the hand and flowers is all about it's about informality isn't it you can do you know michelin with within a pub why did you feel so fondly about pubs? I, I just think it's always been one of those spaces that I recognise as um, 
you know, from a chef, it's, it was always where I want, you know, on your day off is where you want to be, it's where you want to hang out, it's where you feel most comfortable. And from a, from a, I, I wanted it to be um, somewhere where everyone's got a relationship with the pub. Everybody, everyone's been to a pub from the age of 80. Not everyone's been to a mission star restaurant. We've all been to pubs, whether they're ones with fruit machines and the horse racing on all day and serve, you know, a sandwich wrapped in cling film behind the bar or whether it's one that is, you know, a kind of like a gastro pub with, with, with good food in it. We've all been and had some experiences of it and we all feel quite comfortable in them and that for me was the most important part that I was reflective of um or of allowing people to feel comfortable in their environment because quite often you can go to special occasion restaurants and, and I love them and don't get me wrong you know I'm in the hospitality industry where those restaurants are so important and I you know I'm I'm incredibly comfortable going into them now but there was a point as you know a 25 year old chef that you know you're not necessarily as comfortable going into you know a a, a posh restaurant that feels special occasionally and you you do relax at the end of it you know you are because they are amazing spaces but you know that sense of my god I don't quite belong in here and that's the wrong feeling for to have you know you shouldn't have that anyway whether whether those are special occasion restaurants and you eat in them once a year once every two years or whatever it doesn't matter you should still feel that they're exciting and enjoyable you shouldn't be intimidated by them but i wanted to create a space that i felt comfortable in from the word go and everybody else should feel comfortable in from the word go yeah, and your wife is an artist and the, together you've kind of created a, a space that is to do with upcycled wood and you got a lot of flack after you got your second star, for example, because you didn't have those white tablecloths. You know, th- does the space reflect who you and Beth are together? Yeah, hugely. And But I think pubs do that in general. I mean, all right, as far as pubs go, we'll probably be seen as a posh one, you know, <laughs> but but it's still at the same point. You know, it, there is still the bar there with a the pewter top and beer, real ale on there that when you come in, you kind of, it's something that you recognise. It's something that you understand, you know, we've all been to that space. And then we've just wanted to create it as, as comfortable and as, as, as livable as possible, somewhere where, you know, you, you should be, you should be able to go in there and 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 enjoy yourself and not feel intimidated and, and that design and that the way that it works has always been um, about creating an environment that feels comfy and you know pubs from the outside they always look comfy anyway they are they're, they're beautiful buildings and they they're seeped in history and they they are then pubs aren't intimidating you know they are places where you feel that you you are welcoming and they they've got a lovely smell to them we have an open fire that's in uh, like kind of like a fire pit at the front door and that's lit no matter whether it's the height of summer or in the middle of winter an open fire is something that makes you feel invited into an, a space it's warming it has a smell to it that's encouraging and uh, you know that kind of um that that tactile feeling of wood of natural product is something that doesn't make it feel so sterile and that and that's really important yeah and you make the point that a lot of chefs are using disused shops and they're going to be plenty of those coming up uh to to just kind of change the shape of the high street and get people eating in different spaces you know kind of leaving that old school restaurant scene behind but opening it out and making it just very inviting yeah i, I mean you're right and you look at the way that um 
uh, that, that kind of food scene, the British food scene has moved. And it's, it, there are fantastic restaurants in top end hotels and beautiful spaces in Mayfair or city centers that are incredibly exciting and country house hotels that have got grand dining rooms. And they're all wonderful to spend amazing time in. But there's a lots, lots of young entrepreneurial spirits within the hospitality industry that look at being able to set things up. So 15 years ago, when we set the hand and flowers up, 20 years ago, you know, it was quite groundbreaking that really good cooks were cooking stuff in pubs they weren't necessarily taking those jobs in top-end restaurants and hotels they were going actually i'm going to cook great food but in this environment and that that kind of gas you know you, you that term gastro pub has died and it's died because pubs now are seen as um it's almost come the norm that it's expected that you'll have something pretty reasonable to eat. It might be some homemade pate or it might be soup of the day, but it'll still be pretty good. It won't be out of a packet. It'll be, you know, something that the, the chef has made really good sandwiches, a nice sausage roll, a, you know, a fish and chips that's using fresh day boat fish and, you know, just certain things. The level of expectancy now has just become food in a pub is not now seen as gastro pub. It's just food in a pub that you expect to have be half decent and then you know that then has moved to those those chefs at the time when i opened hand of flowers i was 31 years old and you go you know that was that's pretty young and there's now 31 year old chefs that are opening in um box parks or in you know disused um uh sort, sort of retail outlets or spaces where they can just set up a small kitchen and cook and cook really exciting and vibrant and lovely lovely food so so yeah that f- food scene that british food scene has most definitely moved forward but the you know that pub scene was kind of at that beginning of breaking down those barriers and it, and then it's been you know it's been grabbed by a lot of young chefs now who are running with it and that makes it really exciting yeah and most importantly those young chefs are coming out of the kitchens of the the last generation so they're being trained brilliantly and they're bringing exciting new flavors with them and exciting new ideas you know informed by their travel around the world and you know so so we've got a really really good food scene now in the uk haven't we exceptional and like you say yeah it's travel around the world but it's not just that it's it's like the instagram age of chefs and 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 for that point of view it's been incredibly important social media has been fantastic because you know particularly instagram because that visual connection that understanding the fact that there's videos and you can get such a a live um you can get live feeds and you can get vibes and you can get an understanding of a particular restaurant or style of cookery from around the world you know you've got chefs now that can be cooking something uh uh, over in i don't know wales like um gareth ward over at yinshi hall but is then following someone who's doing something incredible over in Tokyo you know and 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 the guys in his kitchen are then also seeing what someone like Alex Atala is doing at down in Brazil and all of a sudden you know the internet and and social media and particularly Instagram has connected chefs on a on a worldwide basis that allows those exciting food vibes to grow and flourish without you even having to go to Brazil you can kind of get a half understanding of those flavors now of what's happening rather than waiting for a singular cookbook to come out every five years yeah it is extraordinary. Your second food moment is the bread chapter. And, you know, that is, for me, that story, uh, and I'll ask you to tell that story of zero money and 48-hour shifts, is all about what setting up a restaurant is really all about. It's you doing the tiling yourself. You know, a lot of those young chefs that you were talking about, it's very important to get your hands dirty, to get down your hands and knees and, you know, grout and paint and all that kind of stuff. But, 
the story you tell about the the bread is really when things were were not great. Yeah, I kind of I recognise now that it, you know it, that there's people within the industry who know me now but didn't know before. And you look at you know someone who, who's got a cookbook out and has had a number of cookbooks and has been on television and speaks on podcasts and does radio and you know presents live TV or does you know has a, and it looks like it may have been something that's just been uh, pulled out of the blue and it's quite yes it is very lucky and I've taken lots of lucky breaks and I've done whatever. However, like the graft of the hand of flowers and it's very much like so many other people within business will tell you the same sort of story that it is when I was 31 when I opened it I mean no one knew who I was I had maintained and held a mission star for two guides but at the same point no one knew in the industry who I was let alone you know anyone on Marlow High Street where I was looking at you know opening a restaurant or a pub and you go okay so uh, the understanding of opening a business, you go from earning a particular salary with an understanding of how much you're going to take every month and what it will be and how you move forward to then going, OK, I'm going to open a business and I might not earn a single penny. In fact, I might lose absolutely everything that I've got in the first place. So that fear of running a business. Now, yeah, hospitality, I can talk from because it's my experience. But I think anybody who runs a business or who's had a business or has a business and has been going for 15 years plus will tell you things that are exactly the same, where there's been stories where, you know, you, you dig deep, you have to do, um, you have to do the tiling. You haven't got any money. Do you know what I mean, I said, we set the hand of flowers up on a blag. It was a lie to the bank and it was um, a couple of credit cards. And before you know it, we've got a pub and it's, it's all, just like so now i've got to make this work because i'm you know i'm i've totally blagged it and i'm, I'm you're hugely under pressure so you do everything you can and when you run, you haven't got any money so you tile the kitchen yourself you put up the shelves you learn how to fix and repair an oven to build to rebuild it to take it apart to put it back together to have a go at fixing fridges to i mean the number of times that i electrocuted myself whilst trying to fix the dishwasher that i bought second hand from from a, from an auction that, that, that you know the electrics were dangling down in the water i mean i'm surprised i'm still here to be honest but you know all of those sort of things that were going that go wrong and constantly go wrong and you know we opened it in 2005 and then 2008 obviously the recession hit and that was a really bad time for everybody um uh there, there was very very little in the way of money for anyone no one was spending anything and it was very very difficult we 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 made ourselves quite busy we were quite full um because we had um it, we put on a 10 pound set lunch so this 10 pound set lunch was on and people were coming for lunch but uh, you know you're not making any money because it's only a tenner so it's like however you know it's got an an energy and an atmosphere and you need to do that but there there was zero money there and you know, we, we, the staff are getting paid, but me and Beth have no money. We, you know, you've got to to live or survive. You know, we're losing money hand over fist. It's leaking everywhere, and you can't control it. So, I I used to do. Um, there used to be a little wine shop in in Marlow High Street, and down the side of it was a little alleyway. And I asked if we could borrow that alleyway every Saturday morning and stick a little bread stall up in there. And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course you can. So I would go go into work, you know, I'd work seven days a week. Um, it's your own business. You're just, you're just constantly cooking. And I'd go in on the Friday morning around about 6.30, 7 a.m., like every, like every day. And then we would cook all the way through the day. We'd do lunch and, and, and dinner service. And by the time you finish at around about 11.30 at night, 12 o'clock, I would get... Um, 
got a couple of um, small little kitchen aids up and and I would get on and work through the night um, making and baking bread. So I would make loaves of bread throughout the night and some Cornish pasties and some whatnot. And I'd be done by around about 7.30 in the morning. So bear in mind now that's a 24-hour shift. That, And then what would happen is Beth would come in and pick the, everything that I baked and made overnight and she would take it down to the, to the little alleyway and sell it. And, you know, that would be our kind of money for the week, whatever, whatever she got for that, that would be a bit of cash that would go, you know, we'd pay for a, a bit of shopping at Sainsbury's or whatever. And then, um, but then, you know, 7.30 come, Beth take the bread and I would just get on and carry on working and then work all the way through Saturday as well through till around about, you know, midnight, one o'clock Saturday morning. So it was from, um, Sunday morning. So it's uh, from six thirty, seven o'clock sat Friday morning, right the way through till about one a.m., two a.m. The following Sunday morning would be my by my full on shift, and I would do that, you know, week in, week out. And but it was, it's the sort of thing you've got to do when you have your own business and you're stuck in a recession, and there there is no other way out of it. What you can do, you could shut the doors and walk away from it, but well there's 24 hours in the day you, you there's 24 hours in every day that you can try and make it work and that you can improve it and you can save jobs or businesses or lives and you know that attitude we still we still have and we still you know and i think that's why um the hand is um is has been quite successful because people join us on join us on that journey and you lead by example and you keep moving forward and you know it, it but i do think that if you speak to anybody else in any business and it doesn't matter whether it's a building trade or a marketing company or a you know a, a car mechanics garage or a hairdressers or whatever anyone who's been in that business for 15 years will tell you similar stories of when times are hard of the things that they've had to do to help their business to survive there's no there's nobody out there that's had a 15 year clear run in their business and just made loads of money and walked away from it you know going yeah it's a bit it's a breeze this because it isn't running your own business is incredibly difficult and making it survive for a long period of time i take my hat off to anyone that's managed to do it yeah and i think that's probably why people relate to you so well it's you know you're a michelin star chef who's a man of the people and that's very probably why your third food moment is also to do with that kind of the 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 way that people can relate to you your childhood memories of eating out is what you've chosen take us to the chicken in beer and malt yeah so the chicken in beer and malt is a kind of I was looking, we were looking, we always kind of try to have a white meat dish on, whether it's pork or whether it's chicken, because it's always, the, the menu is always constructed around the hand of flies of being safe. It's people, th- dishes that people recognise, you know, we'll have steak and chips on, we'll, we'll have creme brulee, we'll have an omelette, we'll have whatever, you know, you'll have chocolate on as a pudding and you'll have, you know, there's always things there that I, I try not to com- to confuse people i don't want to push their boundaries of what they understand you know cookery we're not we're not on a 17 course tasting menu here where we're trying to you know where three or four of them are quite you know um a little bit kind of out there and really things you haven't tried before they should be you know there should be the dishes should be things that are recognized that you feel comfortable that you want to order um so I was looking at one of the first dishes that I, you know, I was thinking about my first experiences eating out. Now I grew up as a from a, with my mum's single parent family uh, in on an estate in Gloucester, and it was kind of okay, you know, special occasions for us were going to um, Bernie Inns. Now I, they were set up as kind of like not posh restaurants, but they were they were nice food in a pub. But it was kind of a brand that was rolled out, and one of the dishes that used to have was half a roast chicken with chips and peas, and it was like kind of like peas that had been 
like sat under the hot lamps for ages so they're a bit dry and crusty and a half a roast chicken and a but i just and, and served with gravy and i just remember it being such a brilliant thing because it was exciting that i was going out for it was like a birthday or a, something special either mine or my brother's birthday or maybe my mum's and and you go to a bernie inn and it meant it, there was something amazing about it it was just it was a magical thing because it felt like you were eating something um that you were in somewhere you were going out, out as a young kid. It was brilliant. So, from my point of view, the chicken, the chicken in beer and malt is, is is my version of a Bernie in chicken. I mean, it is something that I, you know, it, it's we cook it very, very differently, and we do, you know, the whole the whole process of it is very, very different. But it should have that same. It, it reminds me of that same warm feeling of enjoying eating out whilst eating something that you recognise in a safe environment that's comfy. So, yeah, it's half a roast chicken uh, with beer and malt that is a, a, like a, a proper nod to the uh, the old school Bernie Inn. Yeah, it's nostalgia food, isn't it? But, you know, what's interesting is that you've taken the malt and the hops from your local brewery. So you've really brought that way into the 21st century with by using leftovers, surplus, you know, being very sustainable in that way how much of that is is in your kitchen do you know what the thought of sustainability is something that's all we always talk about but it's not always the first i'll be honest it's not always the first um point of why we create dishes but there has to be a reasoning to it you know the point of creating the dish is um how does it make you feel what does it taste like what's the point of doing it but also what is the best ingredients that we can find and who does it help and support and you know if we can find those sort of things and if they all tie in then it makes a big big you know it does give a a lot more depth to the dish and i don't just mean in terms of flavor but in terms of reasoning and rebellion brewery a fantastic microbrewery in in marlow and you know the beers that they do are amazing but they're also a wonderful company that is you know employees locally as such held in such high regard within the community and it, and it's such a special um such a special business that you know we 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 find ourselves that we, there's quite a bit of synergy between us and rebellion and it's really nice to be able to work hand in hand and then use their their malt and their hops and we brine the chicken so it kind of it, the flavors come through and, and and the hops that you kind of the hops that you use i mean hops if you don't haven't experienced them before they've got a real lovely wonderful herby kind of aroma to them they're 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 kind of quite light they're quite fruity they're quite you know it is very similar to using rosemary or thyme so the idea of using it particularly infused into a brine for to give the chicken a little bit of extra depth and flavor it's a really nice thing to do so yeah it does give it that kind of like that beery element or that that herbal flavor that you can get from real ales sometimes that you know, it's not necessarily what you're looking for, but it's an underlying flavour, and that's really important coming through in the chicken dish. Yeah, gorgeous autumn-y flavours there. Um, your final food moment is the creme brulee, my favourite dessert ever. Why did you choose that one? Well, it's a dish that's been on the menu for a long time, and I learned this, it's been on from the beginning, and, it, and it, there's a number of reasons. One, it kind of sums up the way that we cook and the hand of flowers is four ingredients. It is cream, eggs, sugar, and vanilla. And there is, there, there isn't any other ingredients, but, you know, but it's two mission star level. And it's a, okay. So how, how are we creating those four ingredients and everyone can get at home? Um, but it also has this recipe in particular is steeped in history. It's, you know, it's a recipe that I learned whilst cooking at, um, a restaurant called Monsieur Max, where the head chef was Alex Bentley. And this was a, a creme brulee recipe that he, he, 
fame from Elizabeth David. So it's one of those really old school um, um, cookery writers that has then taken it from her journey around France and has gone. So it's a it's a French dish that she's found, and this is her version, and it's then rolled into something else. And so it's probably been twisted and turned a number of times by the time it's got to me. Um, but it, it is essentially those four, those four, four ingredients. And, but it's also the methodology, the way they cook. So quite often creme brulee is done with, um, egg yolks. But for, for, for this, this is whole eggs. I want the egg. You can taste the eggs. That's quite important. The vanilla is really good vanilla and the sugar, the actual sugar content in the cream is very low. So quite often going back to those, harking back to the burning in days, you'd have creme brulee and it'd be just a really cloyy, sweet dessert with the vanilla at the bottom of the dish and then the caramelization of the sugar at the top was just like lightly melted so it's really light caramel so everything about it was sweet we go the opposite way here we, we don't put very much sugar into the cream we make sure that the, it's quite high in an egg content so you can taste it um whole eggs and the vanilla is really good so so the the less the less sugar the more you can taste the vanilla which is the most important thing for me and then the caramelization on the top once it's cooked and set the cooking method also is cooked on top of a stove, um, and it's, or, or any way that you can bring it up to, to 80, uh, 88 degrees centigrade. I think it might be 82 or 88. I can't remember. 88.2 degrees centigrade, I think. Um, and, and that's the point where the eggs are setting, are set. And that way that it suspends the vanilla through it. So you have the flex of vanilla all the way through it rather than sunk to the bottom. Like if you cook it in a bamery. And then when it, once it's set, then the sugar that goes over the top, you heavily caramelize it. I mean, I mean, literally very, very close to burning. You want the bitter sweet flavor that you get from heavily caramelized sugars because that then drives that flavor of vanilla really importantly. So all of a sudden we've taken what is a creamy vanilla-y sweet dish into being something that's quite, it's still got that richness and that velvety smoothness of the cooked out custard, but you can taste the vanilla and you can really get that, that kind of like a burnt, bitter, caramelized, wonderful sugars that gel it all together with that crisp crushed um, crack top so it is you know there's lots of history in the dish but it's also it also is about taking simple ingredients and making them sing for what they really are a michelin masterclass from tom carriage thank you so much tom i'm really best of luck with the book i'm sure you don't need it it is a piece of work um so thank you very much for for coming on cooking the books and best of luck with it Jenny, thanks ever so much for your help thanks for listening do rate and review and tell your friends to listen and i'll be back next week with the london pie man callum franklin 